I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Joe Calarco, a multiple award-winning director, playwright, and dramaturg, whose off-Broadway credits include productions at Playwrights Horizons, Primary Stages, Second Stage, The Lucille Hortel, The Transport Group, Dreamlight Theatre Company, and the New York Musical Theatre Festival. He is the adapter-director of Shakespeare's R&J, which ran for a year off-Broadway and earned him a Lucille Hortel Award. He also directed the play's premieres in Chicago, D.C., London, and Tokyo, garnering multiple awards along the way. He has directed national tours, world premieres, and many award-winning productions at regional theaters across the country, including at the Tony Award-winning Signature Theater, where he is also director of new works. As a writer, his published works include Shakespeare's R&J, In the Absence of Spring, and Walter Cronkite is Dead. His new play, Winter Break, was published by Dramatist's Play Service earlier this year. Hi, Joe. Hey. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being on American Theatre Artists Online. I, we're really happy to have you on our podcast. We don't get a lot of directors. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be a director here. <laughs> yes, and you know, I, I, I've been um, going over all that you've done, and your, your resume is, is vast and long. Uh, you've done a lot of different things, and, a, and you've directed a lot, but you're also a writer, uh, published works. You're an adapter of works, and you know. And for me personally, um, I'm really happy to have you on because I've seen a lot of your work as an audience member. I've also had the chance to be in a show that that you directed uh, many many years ago, and and I I've always been fascinated by the way you direct. I can always tell it's a Joe Calarco show when I'm sitting in the audience, even if I don't know you've directed it. I'm curious to hear what what's uh, hear about what you see that makes the Joe Calarco show. Well, we'll jump you. we'll jump right in, which is um, the ability to work with designers so in such detail in such an intense and strong visual way. Um, when I, I, I you know when you when you as an audience member when you go to see shows, there are always moments that stay in your head like visuals. Mm-hmm. For yours, I have many. <laughs> and I and I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't for other show other directors, but for yours, I really do. Um, I'll just throw some out here. Um, Please. Balloons going through a door that opens magically. Um, 
two women uh, lit from behind in red and browns uh, who are connected and yet not connected. Um, those are just two. Uh, <laughs> how's that? <laughs> uh, I, I definitely. Some people if, that know me or have worked with me, if they they listen to this, will laugh just because I had my balloon years. I, I I've always liked balloons because they break um, vertical space, like they break the space in a different way that you can't do all the time, um, and it's also mobile. So I, I enjoy balloons. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so important to me. It is in many ways my favorite, not my favorite thing. It is, uh, I love working with designers. I've, I've, I've learned from them so much over the years. Sometimes a designer will completely blow open the show for me in, in a way of how we should do it with, you know, early research, um, and I feel I was fortunate. Um, I've said this about my my mother who passed away about 11 years ago, that just sort of the way she did things and the way she, I always say she, she taught me, I think without knowing it, how to recognize beauty. And I think that that's an important thing as a director. One of the things we need to do. And, and I just saw very influential shows early on, you know, Dream Girls is my first Broadway show I ever saw um, in terms of composition of bodies on stage and um, and Jelly's Last Jam on that one of the first shows, but that had a huge influence on me visually uh, even before Falsetto's Falsetto Land, which I saw um, alone in terms of just how James, those those uh, pieces on casters. I use a lot of casters as well. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of how cinematic that was, so there's, I've, uh, you know, you. I think you learn from what you see often, and I feel like I've seen a lot of great theater, and not like specifics because you never want to. I feel very strongly ethically about never uh, taking anyone's work, stealing anyone's work, but um, in terms of what it inspires and conceptually what they're doing visually. So, and it's, again, it's, it's my, and it's my, the easiest part of the job to me. And again, for whatever I, I've always said to like, um, you know, thank the universe for giving me, allowing me to see things a certain way and hear things a certain way. And I love that part of, that's why I love tech of just making it, beautiful mm-hmm. and and never just for beauty's sake i always tell myself i allow myself one uh because it's beautiful reason for something in a show in the production right like one i always moment. think everything has to be yeah one moment i think everything has to be sort of has to be not sort of but it has to be dramaturgically sound of why you're doing mm-hmm. something visually story. you drive the story you may not agree yeah, you may not agree with it, but there's a reason for it. But I will allow myself one because it's beautiful. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Uh, and you've mentioned some really interesting things in this answer so far that have really started to put the pieces together for me as an audience member who has enjoyed a lot of your your work. Um, the references to Michael Bennett and Dream Girls and and, yeah. and George C. Wolfe in Jelly's Last Jam and James Lapine in Falsettos and Falsetto Land and that whole uh, trilogy. Yeah. Um, the 
all three direct. I see. I, I can now that you've mentioned it. I can see some of that, um, but it's got a different twist with you. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- there's something that you bring that is so uniquely Joe Calarco, and I don't know how else to explain it. I think there's some connection in terms of the way you adapt material as well when you've had the opportunity to adapt. I'm thinking the production. So so the, the two images I mentioned were from, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is just from memory, from a sideshow at Signature Theater in, I believe was 2000, and um, Elegies, the, the William Finn show. Also, I yeah. saw at Signature, but I know you did other places as well. As well. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking particularly about your adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream at uh, yes. um, at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C., which was really, there's an auteurship to your work. So it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely honoring the needs of the play, but there is a unique imprint in terms of visual style. Yeah. Um, how do you, what what is that about for you? How do you approach that? You've talked about a bit about the designer yeah. work, but what about the way you adapt or, or, or look at works differently? I'm glad you brought that show up because that actually, I had the greatest lesson from a designer ever in my career from that show. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, up till then, you know, I had done R&J, I'd done stuff downtown in New York and I'd done the Jinsky Last Dance at Signature. But that was the first show where I suddenly had like a huge budget and a big cast and, and, um, and the designer on it, who was someone I actually went to college with, and we didn't know each other super well. His name is Michael Fagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was in a production that he designed at college, Ithaca College, where we both went, of Oedipus of Colonus. And mm-hmm. I just remember thinking, oh, I, I want to work with him. I was starting to feel like, oh, I, 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 I knew by then I was interested in directing. And... Um, so we had our first meeting and because again, I had worked downtown and it was always like, get it up, get it up, get it up and result. And I wanted to talk about what it was going to look like. And he wanted to talk about the play. <laughs> and, you know, I had, I honestly at that point really never worked with a designer in a kind of intense way. Downtown, I did all of it myself, basically. Mm. Um, and for Nijinsky, I had a very, it was a, 15 by 15 ranked platform. The, the lighting design on that was a, a huge sort of understanding of, of immersing myself in, in, in light. Though I, because I started when I was young and through college as a dancer, like that always sort of made sense to me too. And I think that had a huge, having danced has, has had a huge influence on my direction, I think. And, uh-huh. um, but Mike, we, so we were sort of, he, he said to me, oh, there's a, there's a question in the title of the play we need to answer. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but I didn't want to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, um, and we were sort of circling each other and, and uh, sort of talking in circles. And finally he was like, he said, Joe, whose dream is it? I get chills like saying it. Cause I, every show I do, I think whose dream is it? Meaning who's, what point of view are you going to tell this story from? So then we started talking about the play and I, you know, as you look at it, you realize that Hermia um, literally <laughs> is running for her life. And, um, and so 
we talked about that and then we talked about you know when were women corseted and um I mean, I, my adaptation happened because I didn't plan on adapting it. I was probably going to trim it a little bit. But um, that conversation made me think, well, I want to do this really from Hermia's perspective, which is when that, you know, that production started at Hermia's rehearsal dinner. And she's being corseted into her wedding gown by Bottom, who's her tailor. And she passes out because she can't breathe. And then the whole dream is literally her dream and kind of, and sometimes it's a nightmare. Um, but, uh, but when we talked about that thing about corseting, and so the, the set of that show, the architecture was all 17th century. And then the costumes that Helen Huang did were, you know, fifties Dior. So that's where the, you know, that's what I learned from him of like, none of it's just because it's pretty like that show i you know that design on that show and dan wagner did the lights was you know beautiful yes but all those decisions came because of dramaturgy because of talking about what is the show about and then coming to this idea of this woman who's being forced into marriage or she will be executed mm. and so again, we started talking, and by that point, all, all of us were talking, and that's when we the sort of idea of corsets came up, and mm. um, and so that design was very specific to. Now I don't know if people even saw that, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> they may sure not have seen it, it on the audience side, but this idea yes. that it's taking place in Hermia's, you know, it's Hermia's yes. point of view, Hermia's head, then suddenly the design of the fifties and the the corsets as uh, from a woman, yeah. uh, uh, you know, yes. would make sense. Whereas if you'd, you had made yes. the choice that it was one of the, the, not the female character, but another character, then maybe yes. uh, it would have changed. And again, very sort of high end in terms of, you know, sure. again, these sort of beautiful Dior sort of cocktail dresses and gowns and guys in tuxes. And, and then again, it was about them, them being, and then scenically, because it, her world literally blew up. Then once we were in the woods, um, it, all of that architecture in the woods was amplified, mag, magnified architecture from the house, mm-hmm. from the first opening sequence. Because so, it's, it's in her head. It's in her It's image. in her head. So and, you, you know, many it. people, not many, but a couple of people said to me afterwards, uh, actually one reviewer said to me, I realized on the way home, because And I also rearranged the order of the play. I mean, the, fir- mm-hmm. the first act of Shakespeare's play is completely filleted. I mean, I rearranged, mm-hmm. I reassigned text. Um, mm-hmm. It's re- rearranged text. Uh, you know, Hippolyta and Theseus don't exist. Those lines are given to Hermia's parents. Um, mm-hmm. And then I moved the full Pyr- Pyramus and Thisbe into the middle of the play, which actually the opera does. Mm. Um, and so the the end of it ends on a much more wistful note, but a mm. happy note as they walk off mm. out of the woods uh, together. And a reviewer said, and I, I realized when I was driving home, oh my God, like when she wakes up from the dream, she still has to marry Demetrius mm. or die. Mm. So the harsh um, reality sits in. 
guess that settles because in. Because I, I never went back to her reality in the production. Yeah. yeah. But it's, um, yeah. so it's, it's a little bit of it is, it's interesting to me, this is explained so much because as an audience member, the experience is, you know, people talk a lot about heavy concept or a director having a concept that really changes the play or does something different to the play. And, you know, and, and Shakespeare, just because of the way it's written and everything, and it's so old that it, it, everyone's always putting all these concepts to it. But concept for just concept's sake is something you see a lot of. But in you... Yeah. What it is, what you've just explained, is that it's not concept just for concept's sake, right? So it's concept at the service of a positioning of, of sort of how the play needs to fit for the, yes, the and, take and, that you're doing. And how I also feel about it, because I thank mm. you for saying that, because I, I feel strongly about that in terms of what I do. And, uh, and I also have never... Uh, what I want to do is amplify the story that is already there. What we just talked about is A Midsummer Night's Dream in terms of mm. what is trying to be said with A Midsummer Night's Dream in terms of I just amplified her situation mm-hmm. hugely. Her point Same of view. with, I mean, the, the reason R&J is R&J is because I've always had seen Romeo and Juliet Mm. and was like bored and or thought it was too sweet. Uh, uh, uh. So, and, and while everyone said, oh, it's the most you know dangerous, you uh, know, erotic it, yeah. Romeo and Juliet I've ever seen, I'm like, it's really? Romeo and Juliet. It is those two things. I didn't do anything to that play that's okay, so let's talk about the play. So we, <laughs> yeah, so let's talk, we've talked about Midsummer. Let's talk a bit, for those yeah. listening in who may not know, let's talk about this, about Shakespeare's R&J, because I think yes. it is a major work of yours uh, that has not only it you know, gave me a career, right? And <laughs> it, it ran it ran for a yeah. year off Broadway and earned you a Lucille Lortel, yeah. Lortel Award. You also directed, aside from the off the hugely you know successful off Broadway production, you also directed the play's premiere in Chicago, D.C., London, Tokyo, and you got multiple awards along the way. So. What did you do? What what precisely, you know, can we talk, let's talk about your adaptation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet yeah. into Shakespeare's R&J. Tell us what yeah. it is for those listening who, who are curious and don't haven't, haven't gotten a chance to see it, and a bit about the history behind its creation. It might yeah. take you a while, but I think this is really yeah. important stuff. Uh, quickly, what it is, it's, it's Romeo and Juliet done by four young men who are in a kind of Catholic military school. Mm-hmm. The... It's interesting because people assume it is a very auteur-like piece, even though I don't think of myself necessarily. I, I, it was after that show, I met with a couple of artistic directors who would afterwards would say, you weren't at all what I expected. I thought you'd be sort of dressed in black and very intense. And um, not that I don't have intensity. But, um, uh, but that, that's, people assumed I planned that show for years. It was always in my head. It wasn't. I the theater where I created it, Expanded Arts Inc., which no longer exists, which is on the Lower East Side of New York. Um, I became their resident playwright, and I and they basically did world premieres and Shakespeare because you don't have to pay royalties on either. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, and it was a gutted out deli. It was just basically this sort of hallway with folding chairs. I mean, you could reorganize it, but you could maybe fit thirty seats in there. So. Um, and they were going to do an all male Romeo and Juliet and the artistic director was going to direct it we then both were up for a production of Much Ado a tour and she got it and she said will you do Romeo and Juliet and I said yes was that still called Romeo and Juliet uh, I said yes because I'd always wanted to do it because I never I always thought it was again too sweet and too sort of cute um, mm-hmm. uh, and then I hung up and thought 
but I really don't want to do it all men. A couple of reasons. One, it was, it was sort of the era of the, I call them the downtown male underwear plays, where there was a, it was sort of a romp of a kind of homoeroticism. Not that I'm against that, but I just thought it could go so many bad ways. Mm-hmm. And also being gay, I was like, I just, I just, you know, wrestled with what I was going to say about it. Because I was like, I don't want to do it as a kind of, well, Shakespeare had men play women as a historical thing. Yeah. And so, again, it was very, it was very, again, sort of, I, I was given a concept that I didn't want. And mm-hmm. so I said, well, okay, you've got to figure out the concept. So I literally was like, well, I have to make lists of where are there only men? And there's not, you know, there's the military, there's a locker room, and there's a boys' school, which I resisted initially because Dead Poet Society had, like, just, oh, you know, right. was yeah. very recently, not right, but had been out released a couple of years before, probably. Mm-hmm. When is Anyway, um, so, uh, but then I was like, but there, it makes total sense for it to be that. It's actually, it's referenced in a way about schoolboys going from their books um, in Shakespeare's text. I thought, well, it's there. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was, and the reason I cut it down in terms of cast size was because I had done an Othello for them with nine people. And, and Othello, to me, in many ways, is a perfect play. Like, other than the clown scenes, I'm like, what do you cut? But I had to cut it because they did several productions in one evening. So, mm-hmm. like, it had to be two hours. Um, and I also, that theater, literally, there was a door into it onto the street. And that was the only exit you could make mm. to get around to the back other than going to the back. Mm. And I thought, well, let me just not have people leave the stage. It was a cast of nine. And when I did Romeo and Juliet, I thought, well... I need to outdo myself. So I'll do, so I had an assistant at the time and I said, can you just mathematically, how, what's the fewest number of people I can do the show with? (laughs) He went through it and was like six. I looked at the breakdown. I was like, well, that's just an extra person playing all the extra parts. So we started rehearsals with five actors. Wow. Then an actor, one of the actors was on a showcase contract. You know, they were getting subway fare. I was getting nothing. And, an actor got a paying job and quit a week and a half into rehearsal. Oh, and wow. we only had four weeks. To, we had four weeks of rehearsal, five days a week, four hours a day. It was, the, it was insane how mm. quick it was. Yeah. And I was adapting it daily. I mean, I had a script going in, but then I kept changing it because I was discovering things. And so when he quit, I thought, this is impossible. I was working at the front desk for the Carlisle Hotel at the time. Yeah. And I was like, how am I, this is impossible, but that's when things get exciting to me. I was like, well, now this is exciting. Well, like, was, maybe that was the sign, right? It was a sign. Yeah, because up till then, everyone's like, oh my God, I can't wait to see him. Like, what's so different about it? It's a small cast with guys, big deal. Like, it just didn't seem like that <laughs> right. big of a deal to me. And, but then when that happened, then it really became an adaptation because I had to, I just really had to like figure stuff out. Sure. And, um, and so that's how it happened. Again, it was like, and I, I'm a, that show showed me like when problems make better theater to me and hurdles make better theater um, in terms mm-hmm. of figuring stuff out. So mm-hmm. I always get a little nervous. Like actually with Midsummer, like I was like, oh my God, I felt like I was never being told no. And then we actually ended up having a sort of technical problem with um, with some of our sort of water in the show, which made me have to make another huge decision on that show design-wise, like literally the week before we started rehearsal. But um, so so R&J, I ran the light board. 
I mm. went about the costumes. Mm. Like it was, yeah. you know, so on the fly. And, yeah. uh, but it was thrilling. And those actors, I remember once we opened, because I said to them, like privately at the party, I said, oh, this is when we, when we moved uptown. Uh, we had a big party and I said to them privately I said you know thank you guys for just like making this work because it was in I mean I was changing it majorly daily mm. daily downtown and they said something to me that I always remember too they said but Joe the thing was you never looked at this like it was impossible you just looked at this like well here are new pages here's a new balcony right, like a puzzle like a problem um, to solve rather than and or know, not even right. that I just that I never looked as if it was a difficult thing to do or an impossible thing to do. So that gave them confidence, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, we then had to replace one actor when we moved uptown (laughs) because of some health issues in his family. Mm -hmm. And Mm. so that was a quick, that actor had 10 days of rehearsal, not Mm -hmm. even before we opened uptown Mm -hmm. on a very complicated show. And what Um, was, what was the reception like once the show opened? Um, well, downtown, it was interesting because nobody was coming. Mm. I mean, you know, only not that nobody was coming, but like, first of all, it was called Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And at that point still. And I remember I was like, OK, what could, we, we got a little bit of attention at the beginning. And that's because I was like, here's the picture you should use, which was of an open shirted guy with, you know, jeans on, but just from like right above the crotch up to his neck with a cross. And I said, yeah. and let it, and say, have it be four guys, one love story. Any questions? Just to see if people would pay attention sure. to the image. Yeah. Um, but we had one performance that we almost had to cancel because we had less people in the audience, which means three people than <laughs> on stage. And then someone luckily walked in and oh. we did it because we had four people in the audience. <laughs> and down. then timeout came. Mm. Um and gave us a rave review mm-hmm. like an ecstatic rave review yeah and which got us a little bit more buzz but it was on a showcase contract which means the way they would do it they would definitely run because you could only do 16 performances at the most we they would do 12 and if it sold well sold well they would do an extra weekend and do another four performances mm. um we were not selling well the times had come and peter marks was the critic was at the York Times at, at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is the one of the great stories of all time that completely changed my life. So he had come. and But the review wasn't out. The review wasn't out. The review wasn't out. And I said to the theater, call the New York Times. And they're like, we can't call the New York Times. <laughs> so I went home and I called the New York Times. Mm. And they immediately transferred me to Peter's desk. Mm. I left a message just saying who I was and what show I was attached to. He called me back in like 12 minutes, was very nice, mm-hmm. um, and said, look, it's not a full, I asked him when it was going to be out, he's like, look, it's not a full review, it's in my Critics Corner column, it's, I, there were three shows um, that use uh, cross-gender casting, but everyone's still dressed as their own gender, and I, so I did a, a sort of, it's like three reviews in one, mm. and um and I said, uh, he said, when do you close? I said, Sunday. He said, it comes out on Monday. Mm. And I said, really innocently, <laughs> I said, you know, if it had been a good mention, we would stay open. Uh-huh. Pause, pause, pause. I'll get emotional. And Peter said, stay open. Which 
is the most generous thing and changed my life. And I tell people all the time, make a phone call. And I mean, I put that in quotes in terms of take the chance sure. of do the thing that, terrifies or that you're like, I can't do or is uncomfortable. Mm. I mean, if I had not made that phone call, we would not be having this conversation. Well, I and mean, that, that, because we would have had a career, but yeah, people but are scared to really reach out. Just, yeah, they're scared to reach that out. That show allowed me, people give me a lot of, you know, allow me to do things maybe what is considered a different idea or because of that show, that show gave me a lot. I mean, initially nobody would hire me for not, I did not have another show for nine months after that show. Cause I think people did think that that was on a tour. And besides that, mm. it wasn't really an original play. It was an adaptation, but it was a very kind of unique adaptation. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed, we stayed open another week. That piece came out, um, they asked us for a photo, which then nobody had digital cameras. No one had cell phones. Mm-hmm. The husband of the um, artistic director came down with his video camera, like on the shoulder video camera, huge. Took a video and they pulled the still from it. And that was in the paper. That ended up being the poster of the show. Um, and you would have, this was the era, this was the same year era of gross indecency and mm-hmm. how we learned to drive when shows were being moved off of Broadway to off Broadway and making money. That path, young directors will say, what was your path? I'm like, my path doesn't really exist in the way it used to. Right. In terms of that's how you make money was to move from off off Broadway to off Broadway. Like that's not mm. really a thing anymore. Um, right. And producers swarmed down and we're, you know, and, and then, you know, we moved uptown. That was October of 1997. Mm. We moved uptown January of 98 mm. and ran for a year mm. and the times and it was interesting because then peter re-reviewed it when we moved uptown mm-hmm. and then this is still when vincent Canby was doing sunday time mm. times reviews for the sunday times both reviews were over i mean vincent Canby's was like a run do not walk to see the show Great. um and then the times did a feature on me and this is also funny in terms of it was on the front page of the Sunday Times Arts and Leisure section. Mm-hmm. I was still working with Carlisle. I did not quit that job. Right, you still had your day job. <laughs> I read the feature on myself in the Sunday Times behind the front desk of the Carlisle. Oh, that's like, hilarious. Um, There's a play there. And, yeah, and I did a feature on our Daniel Shore, Juliet, and then they Peter re-reviewed it because he did a Sunday feature on shows that had been running off Broadway for a year. We were only at 10 months, but he reviewed it again. Mm. So um, that gave it an extra boost. Which gave it an extra boost. Wow, that's um, an amazing story. So the Shakespeare's yeah. R&J, in your mind at least, that production is what put you on the map for, for got you out of da- just downtown and, 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 and really spread you across the country, right? Because then you start to work well, at various yeah, regional I mean, theaters. Um, yes, and, and I will say that 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 but again i didn't work for a lot like again i don't think people knew what to do with me mm-hmm. i would also say it's on me in terms of like uh, you know uh, this is another thing i tell people like always have things you know you've got ready to go always like you're never you're always auditioning you've got it like no one's yeah. going to come in and swoop in and like you know have your next project ready exactly and not even that but just like you suddenly think again you cannot have paid for those reviews yeah and um and it really was you know i got my first 
job at Signature, and that in some ways, because it's because it was just it was someone else's play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very wildly theatrical piece of theater, but I and then really when I did Sideshow, now I was a musical theater kid. The first two things I directed where I grew up in Rochester, there was a summer a youth summer theater that was completely youth run. And I directed the choreograph shows when I was 18 and 19. Those are the first two things I did. I did not direct another musical till Sideshow, which was a decade later. Wow. And so when- Because when I moved to New York, you couldn't just direct a musical. No, Like they were commercial productions. Yeah. So, um, so really when I did Sideshow and that was so successful, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful I did plays for 10 years because then when I did Sideshow and it was such a success, people don't question that I do both. And yeah. now I think it's more open, but certainly in the 90s, it, you were one thing or the other. You right. Plays or music. And, and there was something about the way, you know, uh, because I was a small part of that that large show, uh, that side, be wonderful side yeah. show at, at Signature, I, I have a little bit more of detail of that one than the others because I was there and I saw a lot of, yeah. uh, I came in after rehearsals, I was a swing that just yeah. um, was brought in to, to, to replace an actor that was uh, doing other things at the time and had, had some other commitments. But I... Um, um, ended up going on fifteen shows uh, yeah. for, for five <laughs> for five different characters, and in that, I guess I started to you know really understand the piece and really had to watch it in detail very quickly to to, to be thrown in. And I, I I don't think I've ever enjoyed, and I performed in many 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 musicals because that's my thing. I don't think I ever enjoyed a show as much. I was as challenged or as thrilled oh, as much probably. as in that production. And it's because, again, the auteurship. The, and I had I interviewed Emily Skinner a couple of, of, of months ago for this podcast, you know, who was in the original Broadway production yeah. of, of Sideshow, for those listening in. And um, I think our production, the production that you directed, Joe, at Signature, I think it was in 2000, must have been one of the first, if not the first, major regional productions of the show after it had closed on on Broadway, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was either the first or the second. It was Um, up there. But yes, it was very, yes. And a brilliant, a brilliant um, uh, cast. And, and, you know, there's this thing about the way you direct. And when you say that you've done musicals, you also mentioned you threw it out there and I didn't get a chance to dig deeper at Ithaca College where you, I, where, you know, you studied dance, yeah. you studied dance and movement, you said. You threw it kind of out there. Well, yeah, my, I mean, my degree is in acting. I, I danced since I was a kid, kid. Yes. Like I was, I danced all through, when I was a kid, through high school, and then, you know, into college. And um, in my degree, initially I was there as a musical theater, well, a couple of things. I went to another school right away after college, dropped out just because I didn't want to be in college at all. And then I took two years off. A part of it, I went to New York just uh-huh. to sort of experience it. And and then I decided, I was actually visiting a friend at Ithaca and sort of fell in love with the work they did and the town and everything about it. And I just, I just felt at home there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided to apply and I got in and I was musical theater. And then that program is very much like a conservatory, even though it's not technically a conservatory, but if, you, every, if you're a musical theater major there, every single class you take basically is in theater. And I thought, I knew by then, I really also went in education. If I was just going to take classes in theater, I could have just stayed in New York. So yeah. I switched to acting just to allow myself for more freedom to take other classes because I could still take as many dance classes as I wanted. 
an audit if I needed to. I could still take voice lessons, but you know, I had to pay. And it was like at that point in the nineties, mm-hmm. was like seven dollars an hour or something. Oh, so God. it what was. Do you, you know, even tell people? <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> so it, it was. I mean, I was very lucky there because I got to choreograph there. I got to direct there. I wrote my first play there. Mm-hmm. See, this um, is I, what I'm saying. I, you, you, you yeah, did... and I directed my first play there as well. Right. So you have directing, movement playwriting all happening there at Ithaca when you're in the yes. you're in that whole cauldron and I think that's what I saw as an actor working you know even though I didn't get to work with you because the show had already opened but in watching the production and all the productions that you've directed that I've seen because I have seen a lot of them that you've directed um, there is an attention to movement there is an attention yes. to the way the actor moves on stage that I don't always get from directors even yeah. musical theater directors or non-musical theater directors, period. Yeah. Uh, and, and that I knew there must have been, and I never really, I've never, this, you know, promise, I've never talked to you about this. No, I, we've never talked about it. But this. I knew yeah. it was there. And I'm a, you know, I come from a dance world and I'm really more of a dancer than, you know, and, and I, and, and that's how I was brought into the yeah. production. And um, to watch how you built that movement-wise. I asked at the time, uh, someone said, oh, you know, uh, Bogart and Bogart and using a lot of, of viewpoints, but I think it's beyond that. I mean, there's a bit of viewpoints. Yes, As I, yes, viewpoints did also change my life in terms of how to approach movement outside of a musical and within a musical. I, I for years, did viewpoints all the time as training, of in the process and and as warm up certainly but um and and an r and j was really in some ways you know it's so influenced uh view to viewpoint work so influenced that production mm-hmm. um in that show but um no it's why when i work with a new choreographer i always talk to them because actually when karma camp and i as a choreographer i've worked with many many times when we met, because she choreographed Nijinsky's Last Dance, mm-hmm. and I asked her, I was like, do you do you know viewpoints or work with viewpoints? And she sort of smiled and said yes, because she did too. Because when I work with a choreographer, especially if it's a musical or a play with a lot of movement, like, I'll have things to say. Or, you know, with musicals, like, I, there are numbers that I will do. You know, if it's, a, you know, there, there are things that I will do and I will certainly have. Because I also think you should know where the director and the choreographers work stops and starts like it should be one vocabulary yes so um but i also need someone who again who will one be okay if i say look i want to do this number and this number if it's you know if it's not completely dance driven and um and that i will we always talk about you know what is the story of the number what is the point of the number what are we trying to say with it because i just think it's so um I mean, collaborators are collaborators. I, you know, I, when I have, um, I often will have friends say, oh my God, what is your relationship with your designers? Because your shows look so great. Or, um, and, and I will, I will sometimes get mad if I review and someone sort of um, will trash choreography or critique choreography. I'm like, well, you, you should talk about the director too, because the director at least said, okay. Has some responsibility. Um, yeah, there's a there's a shared and responsibility. It's all responsibility. Yeah. Right? and I, I, but, you know, uh, I'm I've been doing this now. I mean, since we worked to get together in Sideshow, it's been yeah. you know 20 years. I have now choreographed over 100 productions myself. So I've at various different theaters. So I'm now in that position where I get to work with directors. And as a choreographer, yeah. 
what you're describing is exactly what we want. I hate I hate directors that are like, just go off in the room. I don't know. I'll see you later. Bye. Yeah. I'll see you at tech. And I'm like, no, no, I need you in the yeah. room. I need you to tell me, you know, let's work together. Let's finish each other's phrases or you start and I'll finish. I love those kind of, of, of numbers. I, it was interesting because I discovered viewpoints um, from someone at Ithaca. This is after I had left. I go back. I would go back to Ithaca after I moved to New York for a few years. I went back for an entire year and sort of directed like a play a month and wrote and and I still will go to, to write and sort of sojourn. But um, mm-hmm. but I asked an old professor of mine, "What is this view, view points thing?" And he said, "Well, aesthetically, you already do it." You just uh-huh. do, but it's a vocabulary. And I like that we have one vocabulary about one thing. And I always say, like, to me, it teaches you the power of the head turn. And mm. it gives, I think, actors understanding of of a director and a choreographer what they can do in terms of, they, it gives them sort of some autonomy over, um, they suddenly understand the power of head turn or... Mm they also will understand their habits and allow them to either try something that's not a habit or I'll often say if you are doing a you know, gesture as a viewpoint, but if you know that this is a gesture you do, mm-hmm. knowledge of that gives it a different kind of power and a different kind of specificity mm. yes. than I think without the work. Well, there is an atmosphere. Know. I think that's yes. the word I always think of for your production. I will often do it even if I really don't use it um, because you don't have enough rehearsal time. But Mm -hmm. even if I do it the first day, it does create automatically a good amount of trust and ensemble, a sense of ensemble. It's good for that too. Well, you've mentioned a couple of different things, but I, and you've mentioned in the, in our, in our conversation so far, and I'm conscious of time and I want to make sure I get some things in here uh, that we need to talk about before we, we, we end. Um, you have a long association. You've worked at many different regional theaters. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't list them all. But um, yeah. you have a long association now with the Tony Award-winning Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia. Um, tell us a bit about that history there and how long you've been associated with them. What are your responsibilities? Who have been or are? And what have you know some of your, been some of your favorite experiences? I know it's hard to distill quickly. Yeah, but directing I mean, it's been otherwise twenty two years i mean i worked there first and oh more than that it was like it was like 99 yeah um 22 uh and i I freelanced as a as a director and as a writer i mean they've done two world premiere plays of men in the regular season and i for 15 years wrote their education piece every year okay so let's Um, mention real quick for those listening in the absence of spring and walter cronkite is dead dead. am i right those are the two plays yes that's the two yeah and we'll talk Um, about your new plays soon before we before we wrap up but tell me about signature then a little bit more i mean how many uh, 22 years do you know have you even have you lost track of how many productions i've lost track of how many productions (laughs) um i i feel like sometimes i count and i forget um it's a lot i think i've seen them all And then I went on staff about six years ago for a few years, Mm -hmm. um, which was great as director of new works and also resident director. And, um, and then, you know, I, 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 and it was great. And I learned all the, what I needed to learn from it. And I was, you know, I was heading towards 50 and was like, you know what? I just felt like there was some new chapter coming and, Mm -hmm. um, 
still not exactly sure what it is. And I was just, and I was very much missing New York, but as much as I love to see, and I love to see, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, so yeah, it's, it was, it's, you know, been a great collaboration that I've done, you know, I, there's so much there that I've done that I love. Um, you know, doing Gypsy with Sherry Edelin was, mm. um, first of all, it's a perfect show. Mm. And to do it with Correct. her. Mm. Um, well, let's, well, talk, I mean, I, let's talk about Sherry Edelin, because she yeah. seems to be in a lot of your productions, if not... I, I've not worked with another actor more than her, and by a long shot. Like, we've done over uh, 20 shows together. I and think. Um, that year that we were talking about for a sideshow, uh, Sherry won the Helen Hayes Award for Best yes. Actress. Uh, and, that and I remember when I, we, I had well. cast her and, well, they were doing the show for her, so I wasn't even on the casting. And I, and I had seen her because I had gone down. I had actually seen her in a little night music the year before possibly and so I was like absolutely and then but I remember she came to see R&J at the Folger because mm. I'd done it at the Folger yeah. in 2000 and she afterwards she took my arm and said I want you to work me that hard like I want you to like the, I've, I've never first of all I think and it's not hyperbole I've never worked with anyone to me better and I rarely and she's equal to anyone I've ever seen I just think in terms of her beyond her technical skill, which is astounding in her range as an actor and as a singer, but her full commitment (laughs) to To everything, uh, to everything is, is like not rarely have I seen that. And And I remember actually during gypsy quick, funny, not funny story, but she actually, um, when we were in rehearsal, uh, thought she was having some vocal problems she ended up not having but she really wanted to take it easy before she saw the voice doctor she needed to see and also this is the thing she was rehearsing gypsy during the day and doing the nurse in romeo and juliet at the Mm. vulture at night wow and we should have i should have been like well we we have because cherry doesn't mark she just doesn't mark even in rehearsal Mm -hmm. and i should have been like cherry you need to mark you're doing these two huge vocal roles Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean and so just one day she was like, God, I, and so I was like, well, you know, she went to this, she couldn't see him for a week. I was like, just mark, Sherry. Mm. And we did a run of the show at the end of that week. And she marked, she sang Mama Rose that week, <laughs> mixy and sort of legit. And I remember the kids in the show watching her. And I remember after we finished the run and I said to them, I said, when a director tells you that if you continue this later in life and say, you can vocally mark, but I need you to give a full performance. That is what we're talking about. Cause she was mm. unbelievable. Mm. Even though she was not belting that role, which right. is, you know, she was focusing so, on the acting still all the, the moments deal. and everything there. Yeah. She's yeah. really brilliant. Sherry Edelin, who won the Helen Hayes for that production of Sideshow we're talking about and was brilliant in the production of Gypsy that you directed yeah. that you were just talking about. So thanks for sharing that. It really was a beautiful yeah. production and uh, one of multiple, many, many, many dozens of productions or more that you have directed over the years yeah. at Signature and, and Beyond. You know, Walter Cronkite, I wrote for her and Nancy Robinette. Those parts are written oh. on them. Um, two of our best, two of the best actors so, in DC. Yeah. see. Yes. So um, Sherry's inspirational in Sherry's, anyways, and yeah. she's one of your muses. That's great. Yes, so she absolutely. Is. So you 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 know we, I wish we had more time on this podcast because yeah. I need a part two to talk to you about all the other stuff that you've done. But I <laughs> definitely don't want to go before talking about 
what you've just released, which is your new play. So now we're back on the on on the adapter and and writer side of your of yeah. your brain. Uh, the the new play, Winter Break, which was published by Dramatist Play Service earlier uh, this year, right? Can you tell us a bit about yes. the play, what it's about, what was the germination of the idea, yeah. and if people want to produce it? I know some people that are already uh, looking to produce it. Um, yeah. T- tell me, tell me how they think. It, well, all of that. it was a commission from the Educational Theater Association mm-hmm. um, because, again, I've written these fifteen plays. I had written these fifteen plays for Signature for Teenagers. It's a it's a demographic I like writing for. Mm-hmm. This was nice because I didn't have to attach it to anything sort of historical or what they're doing in school, mm-hmm. which I love doing that. But this I had total freedom, and I was like, you know what, Joe? What would be kind of the perfect? What would high schools want so it's a cast of 19 casting wise it's completely gender neutral you can cast it any way you want Mm. in terms of gender um and uh it's basically the nights of winter break the first night of winter break and it's a group of teenagers and and it's basically two-hander scenes there's one four-hander and one three-hander and we just sort of as they wrestle with you know uh friendship and relationships and upcoming graduation and uh and you know when i wrote it i then did a series of zoom readings of it privately with high schools around the country Mm. to get feedback from teenagers and i was so pleased with how much they really um, loved it and so often they would say you know how do you understand like what it's like to be a teenager and I'd be like well I was one and things really don't change <laughs> super 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 much in terms of certain things and again I've, I've gotten to spend a lot of time around mm-hmm. yeah. um, teenagers doing these other pieces so uh, it was just a joy to write for them and I it was also a great thing with the pandemic because I was on a deadline and so that pandemic hit I had to write it because I had sort of um, you know, sort of let it go for a bit. And I was like, Joe, you need to get to work. And then the pandemic hit. And so I started it in the middle of March, had to have the finished draft by May 1st, finished it, then did the series of readings with schools around the country. And then DPS, I signed the contract to publish it in June, which I've never had to play published it quickly. Yeah, quickly. Well, so the, the, um, the quarantine period really focused your energy on this play to get it to get it to where it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, and I I finished a second one too. I so I'm oh. actually now going to turn it into a series. I'm going with the same characters. I'm going to do spring break, summer break, and another winter break. Uh-oh. And then <laughs> I also wrote I just finished it. I'm doing actually my first reading of it with on Zoom with teenagers tomorrow night. Um Wow. It's called um uh authorized users. It's actually I wrote it specifically to be done on zoom or those kind of platforms but it can be done live um we would just see them in their separate you know places but right. uh wow so i've been writing a ton i was gonna say it's been a productive i was gonna ask you at the top of the interview how you're holding up during yeah. this quarantine time you've answered it at least on the work front um yeah. yeah as a director part of your job is directing but you have this other part of writing which is something that can be done you know yeah during these long periods of breaks, yeah. pauses that we were on. So you've done all this writing, the winter break. Uh, winter break is the name of the play that's out now. Anyone, if anyone wants to produce it at their high school 
or their college, um, can they do it um, by just, or community theater, they can just uh, contact Dramatist Play Service, right? And get yep, the just play. go to the website and Wonderful. it's, you know, there's, it's being done already, which is great. And Yeah, now you'll get to see all yeah. the different productions, you know, see about, hear about I've all seen, the different productions. I, I mean, the amazing thing, because there were five productions within the first two months of it being published wow. um, in, uh, in August, September, and at least two of the productions I saw, like, filmed it, filmed it. Like, made oh. on-location, like, movies with it. It was pretty thrilling. Nice. That must um, be fun to, to watch. see them really, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. take advantage of these limitations we're in. Wow. So, yeah. Well, Joe, it's yeah. been wonderful talking to you here on American Theatre Artists Online on our podcast. It went by so fast. It goes by really fast, doesn't it? I when was, you start, can't there's, believe how and fast. there's so much we didn't get to touch on. Um, so, so many much. other things, but um, I just wanted to, you know, give you this opportunity. If there's any exciting, you've mentioned the plays. Is there anything? Do you have anything in the books yet? I mean, because of the pause, it's really hard to kind of know what's coming up. Yeah. Or do you have any live or online projects? You've mentioned some. Or and and, and if people want to keep updated abreast of what you're working on uh where can they go do you have a website social media how do you like to have people uh, my website is under reconstruction so i would say you know facebook is the best and you they just look for you on joe joe calarco yeah joe calarco yeah okay. in terms of work that's the best play. i mean i have instagram yeah. too but in terms of work is where i sort of because the latest news you'll be you'll facebook. be posting the latest yeah. news there of anything yeah. if people want to uh, find out about anything yeah i do have one i'm actually my you know my sister renee is a playwright as well so yes. she's developing a very new piece um uh with theater j they've given us opportunity to do development on it um so mm-hmm. we actually started that um it's, it's sort of in three stages and then there will be a public reading of it, which I know that, um, a presentation, I should say, uh, online that I'm sure Theater J and I will then, uh, publicize on well, Facebook. But we'll and if have... you're a DC fan, it's, it's, yes. it's, uh, um, it's, you'll, I think, you know, it's a really cool piece. It's called Christmas at Grossinger's and, um, mm. Uh, it's a cast of Maria Rizzo and Danny Stoller and oh. Susan Rome. So it's okay. a great cast. Wow, strong, strong actors. So, um, you know, we'll have to do another one then, another interview yes. episode. We'll bring Renee. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's bring Renee on, and you and Renee yes. can talk about this coming up. Let's do that. I'm I'm I'm, that. I'm not lying, yeah. Joe. I will call you. No, and we'll we do should. It. I would love that. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being on thank American you. Theater Artists Online. This was a great conversation, as always. Um, thank you, Joe. Have a great, great rest of your day, and thank you. You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the American Theater Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theater Artists Online.